Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 31. As they were seeking to kill him, that is Paul, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up the revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take, take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way... And drew near to Damascus. About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him, but they raised their voices. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. One of my 
favorite thinkers of our modern day is Brian Regan. Uh, not a theologian, he's a comedian, which is almost the same thing, right? He has a, a whole bit he does where he talks about words, individual words that can ruin friendships, pet peeves of his. And, you know, for instance, he's saying, you know, people who use the word cinema instead of just saying the movies like normal people would, you know, I enjoy the cinema. Do you enjoy the cinema? You know. And then he tells a story kind of capping this whole thing off, and I'm sure it's true, because why wouldn't it be, right? Um, about having some family over that, that, that they had just met and how everything's going swimmingly. They really like this family, and suddenly the father of this family says, can somebody please pass the cats up? And he says, you know, he looks at the kids and he's like, that's a shame because you know we're never going to see them again. <laughs> because how could you possibly be friends with people like that? And we all have deal breakers, Right? And we have them in all sorts of arenas. It's, it's part of the basics of negotiation. It's cost-benefit analysis. And, you know, anywhere deals are being made, there's potential deal breakers. And that applies whether you're buying a car or, you know, uh, brokering peace deals between nations. Um, or, for instance, when you're deciding who to date, right? There could be many deal breakers. Like, if you're a Christian, it should be. Like, if they're not a Christian, that's a deal breaker, Right. Or maybe they don't like the Lord of the Rings. There's a whole bunch of things that could be reasons why it's not suitable to be together. Uh, many people also have deal breakers when it comes to the gospel and to Jesus himself. Now, I say this with the caveat that everybody likes something about Jesus, in my experience. They can all say something nice about him. Because who doesn't like the guy who makes killer wine at the wedding, right? Like, that's cool. He's a cool guy. Uh, who doesn't like the guy who heals the sick kids? Like, that's pretty nice, right? That's great. Uh, or how about the story we just read where he goes and he feeds a bunch of people in the wilderness for there was no Wawa to be seen, right? You know, like, that's a cool guy, right? These are, are popular things that Jesus does. The Jesus who heals people and feeds people and provides them booze, we like that Jesus. But everybody eventually comes across something in the gospel that they don't like. And for many, that will become the deal breaker. It will cause them to reject the gospel and to reject Jesus, or worse, to reinvent Jesus into an idol that's a little more to their liking. And today's passage kind of demonstrates this truth, because no matter how effective Paul's message and methods, he's a very good evangelist, Paul, eventually it all breaks down. And we're going to see as he takes this one last stab at explaining himself to the mob, he's going to try to win over his enemies, and again, the effort's going to fail, and it all comes down to one key deal-breaker. Now, if you remember, last week we, we left, and Paul was already in Roman custody, right? Uh, and it could have been worse. If the cops hadn't shown up, he probably would be dead already. But he got dragged out of the temple, and the doors were slammed behind him, Luke says. And I think he included that detail to point out what it symbolizes. There's not really any reason, technically, you would think at that point, to slam the doors of the temple to keep Paul out, right? He's been dragged out. He's at the mercy of the crowd. So I get the impression that Luke points it out to demonstrate the extent of the anger, the finality, the people's emphatic rejection of Paul and all that he stands for, the gospel. But again, even as Luke adds that detail of the slam door to emphasize the finality of the situation, he's also letting us know that there's a lot of confusion. He points out, like, look, the whole crowd knows who they hate, but they don't know why. 
Uh, and as I said last week, you have a very diverse crowd. You have Orthodox Jews, and that would include Pharisees and Sadducees and other groups too. You have Christian Jews, you have Greek-speaking Jews, you have some Gentiles, and then you have Gentiles who converted to Judaism, and you have all kinds of things happening. There's a lot of forces at work in Jerusalem, and all they apparently have in common in this mob is that Paul is their enemy. He's the unifying element. So the fuzz show up, right? Roman 5.0. And they snag Paul. And you remember, Rome does not like chaos. Rome is like me when my kids are arguing, right? When my kids are all yelling at each other, I don't care who's right or wrong. I just want there to be quiet in the house. And that's how Rome feels about the situation. So they show up, not so much to arrest Paul, but to restore peace, right? And it's telling that removing Paul is enough just to do that. Because the irony is the only thing that these people have in common in some ways is their hatred of Paul. Uh, it's so unifying that his arrest is enough to stop the uprising, essentially. He's the cause of all the excitement. Not James or any of the other church leaders. There's plenty of believers in Jerusalem, but Paul's the problem. But before they can quite get Paul into the barracks, Paul suddenly speaks up, right? What does he say? As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up the revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. I love this scene, I'm just going to say. Because the Romans clearly have no idea who Paul is or what's going on. Uh, they assume that anyone causing this much trouble must be some sort of revolutionary. And of course, you have to remember, this is a military garrison and that would mean that they would change out every few years. So just like a U.S. military base would be in, in Afghanistan until recently, right? But, but guys are here on a rotation. This is a tour of duty for them. So probably none of these soldiers have been here more than a year or two, right? Which means no one here has ever heard of Paul. They weren't here when all that stuff went down. That was like decades ago. The grudge that some of the locals have against him is decades old at this point. But the Romans couldn't possibly give two flying rips about the whole thing. They just assume he must be part of that Egyptian biker gang or something they were dealing with recently. <laughs> and, and I think the only reason the Tribune even bothers to respond to Paul is because Paul speaks Greek all of a sudden. And it surprises the Tribune because Paul's talking like a civilized guy, like one of us. And it's the first word Paul has spoken since the uprising started. He didn't say anything in his defense. And it's amazing how speaking calmly and clearly can cut through an awful lot of noise. It's kind of like when people talk in a British accent today, right? You suddenly assume, well, this guy must be intelligent, right? He's got, you know. That's how Mark Howard gets away with things over at West Valley, I think. Um, just jerking your chain, Mark. So Paul humbly asks for an audience, but he doesn't ask for an audience with the Tribune. He asks for an audience with the crowd. He's at the top of the steps of the barracks, and he, and he makes this, he figures, well, this is a suitable pulpit for whatever reason. He just, this occurs to him, and the Tribune's like, well, wait a minute, well, aren't you that Egyptian guy that was out in the desert and stuff? And Paul's like, um, what? No, no, I'm a Jew from Tarsus. It's a nice town. Anyway, can I talk to these people real quick? And it's an audacious request when you think about it, right? And it's a little bit weird, too, because you know, not every prisoner gets the opportunity to make a speech, most of them don't want to. In America, we have a constitutional amendment for this exact purpose. Paul's attorneys would be mortified at this request, right? But Paul wants to address his accusers. He's like a glutton for punishment. 
And as we saw last week, I think he's driven by love for these people. He wants to see them saved. And what's more amazing than the request is that the tribune gives him the okay. That's kind of bizarre. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. So he's multilingual. This guy is certainly edumacated, right? Says Paul is speaking the Hebrew language. Some of your Bibles will probably have a footnote indicating that it could be translated as Hebrew dialect. The fact is Paul's probably speaking Aramaic, which was the commonly spoken language in Judea at this time. It's the same thing Jesus would have spoken. But the fact that Paul can speak the local language with fluency has the same effect on the crowd that speaking in Greek had on the Romans. It catches your ear. It's kind of like if I went to like Europe or something, let's say I go to Rome and I, and I see people selling like these you know, you know, frozen concoctions here and I hear somebody else in the line that says like, hey kids, want to get some water ice? I would feel like, brother, like I know you, right? Like, I mean, because only a true bona fide Philadelphian would know to say it that way, right? <laughs> Evangelism requires speaking the language of your audience, even down to the dialect. These people would not have listened to Paul if he started yelling at them in Latin, and, and even in Greek. Greek is the international language. That's how you can impress a Roman, yes, but only a true Jew would know to address this crowd in Aramaic. And so they listen. Clarity of communication is a critical part of evangelism, and Paul does this very well. But now Paul begins his defense, and he really is designed just to be like a sermon. Uh, and largely, it's a retelling of his story. He's giving his testimony. How he went from being a pious Jewish boy to a fervent Christ follower. And it's a story we've already heard, right? Uh, and, and back in chapter 9, and he's going to tell it a few more times in the coming chapters. But he adds a few little details here and there that we haven't heard yet. And so we're going to pay a little bit of attention to those. Beginning in verse 3. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Okay. We're going to think here about Paul's, Paul's methods of evangelism here, how, how to butter up a crowd, right? A few insights. This is the first time that we're hearing that Paul was essentially raised in Jerusalem. Now, we already knew he had roots in Tarsus. That gets mentioned all the time. But it sounds like he's essentially saying, like, I was sent to a boarding school from my youth in Jerusalem. I, I, I was young, and I studied under Gamaliel, who we met him some chapters back. Maybe you recall, back in chapter 5, it was Gamaliel who, who convinced the Sanhedrin to release the disciples. Uh, Gamaliel was described by Luke as being a Pharisee and a teacher who was held in honor by all the people, Right? So Paul is clearly name-dropping here because credentials can be helpful when you're evangelizing sometimes, right? It's the equivalent of saying you studied under R.C. Sproul or something, right? I happen to know, I've mentioned this many times, and I mention it everywhere. I was baptized by Dr. James Montgomery Boyce at 10th Press in Philly. 
I know I mention it because it's the height of my PCA bona fides. That's what I can drop out there, and people know who I'm talking about. So Gamaliel is kind of like the R.C. Sproul or the Jim Boyce of Judaism, right? It's, he's almost certainly dead by this point, but all the more reason to drop his name, right? Because he's not going to speak up and be like, I never liked you, Paul, like he's not here. So you can throw that out there, and it's going to touch their heartstrings a little bit and get them in a nostalgic mood. Oh, remember Gamaliel, what a great guy he was. They all loved him, right? And then Paul also kind of flatters his listeners. It's another important part of evangelism is loosening up your audience, right? So he doesn't condemn their legalism. What he says is he calls them zealous for God, and he wants them to know, I really appreciate your enthusiasm, guys. And then he tries to boost his street cred because that helps in evangelism sometimes too. It helps people to want to listen. So he reminds them, look, I used to persecute this movement, these Jesus people. I arrested men and women, and I did it at home, and I did it abroad. And don't just take my word for it, because the authorization letters are probably still on the books, and some of you council members have been around long enough to remember it. But then something changed in a big way, as Paul tells. He says, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Now this part of the story comports with what we already know. The only thing Paul adds really is his own question that he asked Jesus on that fateful day when he says, what shall I do, Lord? That doesn't change the essence of the story, but it echoes the words of some of the crowd speaking at Pentecost, if you recall, when they asked Peter the very same question, what shall we do? It's a good question to ask when you're confronted with the holiness of God and with your own guilt before him. So Paul is reminding some of his hearers that this experience was really not all that different he walked through this thing, too. He, he was at the end of his rope. And basically, he had to beg for mercy, right? And then Paul recalls his meeting with Ananias. He says, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Again, this agrees with the version Luke gave earlier, except that he says that Ananias had a good reputation among the Jews in Damascus. Paul wants these guys to know that. He doesn't emphasize Ananias's Christian faith, but his Jewish reputation. Again, buttering up his audience. But Paul also adds some things that Ananias said that were left out of Luke's previous telling. Apparently, Ananias explicitly told Paul that God had appointed him to know his will, that he had seen the righteous one. Therefore, Ananias equated the Old Testament concept of, you know, to Jesus himself of the righteous one. And Ananias had foretold that Paul would bear witness to what he had seen that day. And furthermore, Ananias had told Paul to call on Jesus' name and to do so without delay. So Paul says a devout 
well-respected Jew had told him to follow Jesus and then baptized him. Ananias is just another name drop here. Uh, It's Paul's way of saying he didn't start the fire, only without that awful song by Billy Joel. That is really his worst song. It's worse than Allentown, isn't it? I think he knows it, too. But um, seriously, Paul's point is that this gospel message was not his idea. I didn't come up with this. I didn't invent anything. This was forced on me by a higher authority, and it was confirmed by godly Jewish men. But then Paul tells the next part of his story of his first trip to Jerusalem after his conversion. Beginning in verse 17, he says, When I had returned to Jerusalem... And was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Now, these are some fresh details, right? Uh, the story originally back in chapter 9 when all of this happened, at that time Luke only said that Paul had disputed with the Hellenists, Greek-speaking Jews in other words, and that they had been plotting to kill Paul, but he doesn't give these details. Luke said that the brothers rushed him out of town, got him to Caesarea, put him on a boat to safety back in Tarsus, back to his mom's house, remember? But now Paul adds this detail that this plot against him was first revealed in a vision. during a trance, and he is careful to let them know that the vision came while I was praying in the temple. As a good Jew should, while I'm in Jerusalem, that's what I was doing, and then this happened. Paul's whole argument is basically, I was minding my business, being a good Jew, and this was all forced on me. God dragged me kicking and screaming into the kingdom of Jesus. It's kind of how C.S. Lewis describes his conversion. He said he was the most reluctant convert in all, of, uh, in all of England. But he wants them to understand, look, that he never, I never willfully abandoned the traditions. In fact, he almost seems to be disputing with God by the end here because God says, look, Paul, Jesus telling him straight up, you got to get out of this place if it's the last thing you ever do. And Paul says, oh, surely you know, they have to know how zealous I am for the, faith, for, the, you know, for the Jewish faith. Look what I did to all those uh, you know, Jesus people before. They have to remember how I persecuted these people. Paul's banking on the strength of his testimony and experience, but God tells him straight up, look, they're not going to accept your testimony. You've got to get out of Dodge, and you've got to do it quick. This is what Jesus says to him during this trance. And yet, ironically, here we are, all these years later, and Paul is giving his testimony. In other words, Paul's doing what he wanted to do back in chapter 9 when God wouldn't let him. He's finally got this opportunity to say what's been on his mind for decades to tell these people in Jerusalem. Now, I had a couple broad thoughts about this, and, and, and really related to the importance, but also the limitations, of your Christian testimony. Um, because along with clear communication and all the other things we've pointed out, buttering the people up, speaking the language, etc., your testimony is one of the most important elements of evangelism. There is a tendency, I think, in Reformed circles to downplay the usefulness of personal testimony. Uh, Those of you who tend to prefer the Vantillian presuppositional apologetic 
doesn't have a whole lot of room for personal stories a lot of the time. And even if you go the more Thomistic, evidence-based apologetics route, right, you can sometimes downplay that by looking at various uh, scientific elements. But, you know, you, and, and maybe I think we don't like reducing the faith down to our experiences and feelings. We feel like we're cheapening it or something. But what you are seeing from Paul and what we're going to continue seeing from him over the coming weeks is that he begins nearly every formal gospel presentation with his story, his testimony. The story of his own changed life is his primary evidence for the truth of the gospel. I once was lost, now I'm found, was literally blind, but now I see. That's Paul's story. That's how Paul evangelizes, almost without fail. And as we have been reflecting on the need to evangelize here as a church, right, and in the city of Allentown, it's worth asking, do we have a testimony to share? Do you have a testimony to share? Something worth sharing. And you may not have a dramatic miracle like Paul on the Damascus Road, but does your life, your story, show evidence of God's hand? Or put it differently, how has Jesus changed your life? Has the gospel made enough of an impact on you that people need to hear about that? Or, alternatively, is church just a habit. It's something you just do. It's a group of friends you like hanging out with or who help you out sometimes. If that's all it is, that's not the gospel. The gospel, Jesus Christ changes people. That's what Jesus does. That's the business that he's in. So ask yourself, how has Jesus changed you? Because, beloved, we should be asking ourselves that question all the time because it's hard to share good news if you haven't experienced it. And also, something you notice is that it's really hard to refute a testimony, isn't it? No one can argue with a changed life. It makes for powerful storytelling, and that's why nobody's interrupted Paul yet. His story is captivating, it's dramatic, and it has the benefit of being true, and he tells it well. A good evangelist should be a good enough storyteller. We've been enjoying the old uh, Jim Henson TV series called The Storyteller. They only made one season, well, one and a half seasons. And the first season is, is mostly old German fairy tales, which seem to all have in common that they are very predictable, involve the number three. Um, everything happens three times, and then something magical happens after that time. So anyway, we've been really enjoying watching it, mostly because the storyteller character himself, played by John Hurt, is so into it. He believes the story is worth telling, and so you assume it's worth listening to. So you do. And I think that's the power of a Christian testimony. Even if you were raised in the church and you've never known a day when you weren't a Christian, I, <laughs> you could still tell a story of God's faithfulness in your life and how the Holy Spirit is working in you. Now, all that being said, your testimony has its limitations. People will generally listen to your story, but your testimony, even if it's powerful, it is not enough. It's important, in other words, but it is not sufficient. And we know this because, just as God warned Paul years ago, as he was quoting in verse 18, look, the people are not going to accept your testimony. Don't matter how good it is. You'll notice how he words it. Not that they wouldn't listen to it or hear it, but they will not be able to accept it, is how he says it. 
Your testimony is a powerful tool of evangelism, but even the best testimony may not be accepted. Because if your story doesn't fit their agenda and their preconceived notions, it'll remain just an interesting story. But there's another, perhaps an even more fundamental problem. No matter how powerful your testimony, even if your story is amazing, it's verifiable, it's beautifully told, there's likely still to be a deal breaker somewhere in there. And that's what Paul finds out very quickly in these last couple of verses here that I wanted to look at today. Verse 21, and he said to me, Jesus said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Paul just asked them to pass the cats up, is basically what just (laughs) happened here. A single word that has condemned the friendship. It's the first time here in his speech that he mentions the Gentiles by name, and that was enough to trigger this. That's the deal breaker. It's his mission to the Gentiles, and it's funny because up until that one word, he had these guys in the palm of his hand. A crowd that had been downright murderous a few minutes ago has become utterly silent. They are in rapt attention, listening to Paul's story in spite of themselves. They can't get enough of it. It's a great story, so they stop yelling and they listen to the story. Paul's testimony stops them right in their tracks. But then he mentions the Gentiles, and that's the sore spot. That's the third rail. And it was inevitable because it's part of the story. It was going to come up, but there was no way he could tell his story and not talk about the mission to the Gentiles. But there's always something in the gospel that presents itself as the biggest stumbling block to those who reject it. Every unbeliever has a deal breaker, usually several. And as I said before, if you only read selected passages from the gospel, everyone likes Jesus, right? Jesus is a great guy, sounds like a lot of fun, but once you tell the whole story, something in there will become a problem. The proverbial stroll that breaks the camel's back, and this is clearly true because every believer, in spite of whatever else they might say they admire about Jesus, they ultimately reject the gospel and they reject him as their savior. There's a deal breaker somewhere, something that's a bridge too far, something they just cannot accept. Even if they can listen to it, they cannot accept it. Now, for these Jews in Jerusalem, it was Gentile inclusion. Now, why is that such a hot-button issue for them? Well, I think it's a whole variety of things, and some of it I'm sure you could boil down to a simple form of racism. We don't like these people. We think they're dirty, corrupt, irredeemable. Gentiles are inherently inferior to us. We are the chosen race. God's grace is too good for them. You can call this the Jonah philosophy of ministry. Sure, God's grace is wonderful, but it's not for everyone. Or it could be a more subtle form of racism, the sort of separate but not quite equal approach. Look, we love the Gentiles. They're great people. They're welcome to come to Jerusalem and learn our ways. But let's face it, they're always going to be second-class citizens. I'm sure some of it is a misplaced theological zeal, uh, thinking that the Gentiles will be too sloppy in their application of the Old Testament laws, right? And some of it's cultural. They're afraid that Gentile inclusion will mess up their heritage, that their kids will start forgetting where they came from. They'll all be speaking Greek before you know it, right? It's the same fear that drives many immigrants worldwide. 
And, and some of it's a power struggle, you know, fear that the balance of power in the church is going to shift with this many more Jewish, uh, more Gentile converts. Some of it's jealousy that God is doing miracles among these other people groups. I'm sure some of it's nationalistic. It's hard to ignore the fact that Jerusalem right now is under the thumb of a Gentile emperor. Now, not all Gentiles are oppressors, sure, but the oppressors all happen to be Gentiles, it sure seems like. The Gentiles already have everything. Why can't they leave our religion alone? You know, from that perspective, that point of view, a mission to the Gentiles is like sending missionaries to the United States. If you think of the gospel as a sort of limited resource kind of thing, that seems ridiculous and unfair. Why send it to the wealthy and the comfortable? So the Gentile mission was the one non-negotiable. It's the deal breaker that shuts down the whole conversation. But every unbeliever has a deal breaker. Eventually, the gospel is going to confront or be incompatible with or it's going to offend something in your hierarchy of values. Now, think about that in terms of today because we live in a different time and place. What are common deal breakers today? If you look at the culture around you, well, I think probably the most obvious number one example we see in the culture and you see in the news is the biblical model of human sexuality. It's the fact that we affirm that God made us male and female, that sex was made for marriage and isn't supposed to be a fleeting form of recreation. The fact that marriage is designed to be one man and one woman for life. The fact that God hates divorce. The fact that the Bible doesn't accept homosexuality. These are major deal breakers in a culture that has fully embraced the sexual revolution. The gospel doesn't mesh well with a Tinder hookup culture. A culture that has unfortunately seeped into the church. For others, it's the exclusivity of the gospel that's a deal breaker. The fact that we claim Jesus is the only way to God. That's what the scripture teaches. That's a deal breaker for a lot of people. In an, in an age of tolerance. For many, it's simply any doctrine of sin. Because total depravity, even though it's the easiest doctrine to prove, that doesn't make it popular, does it? Jesus confronted one man who walked away because he had much wealth. Possessions and worldly comfort are a dangerous gospel deal breaker, especially in a country that's as wealthy and comfortable as we are here in America. It's hard for people in a wealthy society to understand what the point of the gospel even is. In a country where the social gospel and health and wealth gospels are really both just promising riches, the wealthy don't need God and the poor are trying to use him, and so... Money just becomes a nasty idol, whether you're rich or poor. And that's just scratching the surface. America has a lot of idols. Everywhere the gospel confronts the idols of our age, that's where you're going to find your deal breakers. Because the true gospel and our non-negotiables are on a collision course. Now, some of you may be sitting here thinking, I'm glad I'm not like other sinners. Uh, I don't hate Gentiles, right? Some of my best friends are Gentiles. You, know? you might even be a Gentile, right? Um, or even looking more broadly, you know, well, I haven't bought into the sexual revolution. Maybe I watch porn sometimes, but at least I'm not gay, and I've never been divorced. Uh, I don't really trust Jesus day-to-day -day with things, but at least I work hard. I don't take handouts. Uh, maybe I'm making a mess of my life, but at least I never play the victim card. Now, this is all nonsense. 
And what I want to challenge you today is to reflect on your gospel deal breakers because what is it about the gospel, something that the Bible declares to be true, but that you as a professing, confessing believer, a disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ, maybe even a member of Lehigh Valley Presbyterian Church, what about the gospel do you simply refuse to accept in practice? What are your deal breakers? And maybe you've been here for years, you've never really embraced the gospel. Okay. If you're resisting the gospel call, what's sticking in your crawl? Is it the forgiveness part? Submission to authority? Obedience? Is it too much work? You afflicted by the, the curse of boredom and laziness? Is it the fact that we're called to love our enemies and pray for them? What is it? My point is, I don't want you to let yourself off the hook just because you don't hate most Gentiles. Because we, we all, I think, even as believers, have some elements of the gospel that clash with our idols, right? We love when the gospel clashes with the things we already hate. That's great. You know, we can, we can get rah-rah and we can all be in the amen chorus at that point. But we're not so thrilled when it threatens something that is precious to us. Whether it's something about our identity, nationally, culturally, whatever... Uh, maybe it's one of the many freedoms we've been told we're entitled to as U.S. citizens, whatever it may be. And maybe you can't even accept the forgiveness of the gospel because you think you have a higher standard than God himself, whatever it may be. None of us believe all of the gospel all of the time, not in practice. So that's my challenge to us this week, is to look for those deal breakers and to let God break them. Because the gospel is too big, the deal is too good to let it fall through. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, the chance to open up your word and to let it speak into our lives, Lord, even as these stories are seemingly ancient, Lord. Lord, our nature is still the same. We still have our idols, Lord. As John Calvin says, our hearts are idol factories, Lord, and that doesn't seem to stop simply because we have come to faith, Lord. It's something we wrestle with throughout our lives, Lord. We are at war with our flesh. Lord, help us to see the parts of the gospel that really just rub us the wrong way. The things that we really just, we can hear them and we can even affirm them verbally, Lord, but we really can't accept them in practice and we really don't believe them as we walk throughout the week. Help us to see those, Lord, and to see clearly, Lord, to understand what our own idols are, Lord, so that we can confront them and we can throttle them. Put them to death in us, Lord, we pray, this week and going forward. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.